Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. The only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The CIA warns its personnel after a staffer makes a pro-Palestine social media post. Israel and Hamas are considering a broader hostage and ceasefire deal. Argentina's Millet looks for an IMF reset after meeting with U.S. officials. Iran says it's finalized a deal to buy Russian fighter jets. The U.K. and Greece have a diplomatic squabble over cultural artifacts. Joe Biden and Barack Obama reportedly have a rift on ideology over Israel. An EU court says public employees can be banned from wearing headscarves. Hunter Biden says he will testify before the GOP-led House, but only in public. Hawaii's Attorney General subpoenas three Maui agencies over the deadly wildfires. And the CDC says life expectancy rose in 2022 after two years of decline. In our top story, the CIA warns its staff about social media use after an official shares a pro-Palestine post. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, The Financial Times, Daily Caller, and Washington Free Beacon. The CIA on Tuesday sent out an internal email to employees cautioning them against making political statements on social media. This came after a report in the Financial Times made known that a high-ranking CIA official posted a pro-Palestine image on Facebook in the weeks following the Hamas attacks on Israel on October 7th. According to reporting from the Financial Times, the CIA official is the agency's associate deputy director for analysis. She is said to have changed her Facebook cover photo on October 21st to an image of a man waving a Palestinian flag an image that's frequently used to criticize Israel, the publication reported. Quote, the Financial Times has decided not to name her after the intelligence agency expressed concern about her safety, it further said. Nonetheless, the Financial Times further reported that she previously posted a selfie with, quote, free Palestine superimposed on the image, though the post is understood to be several years old. She also made posts criticizing anti-Semitism. Quote, posting an overtly political image on a public platform is a very unusual move for a senior intelligence official, the publication stated. A source with familiarity of the situation told the Financial Times, quote, the officer is a career analyst with extensive background in all aspects of the Middle East, and this post of the Palestinian flag was not intended to express a position on the conflict. The official previously oversaw the production of the president's daily brief and is jointly responsible for managing all analysis distributed within the CIA, the Financial Times further reported. Soon after, the CIA official was identified by a number of media organizations, including the Daily Caller and the Washington Free Beacon, as Amy McFadden. According to her LinkedIn page, she reportedly has worked at the CIA since 1999 and has since held a number of leadership positions. The profile further states, quote, McFadden is the recipient of several prestigious intelligence community awards, including the Intelligence Medal of Merit, the CIA Director's Award, and the George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism. According to a U.S. official, McFadden was not disciplined in the wake of the news report. The official added that the email that went out to CIA employees was, quote, simply a reminder of existing policy. 
In a statement, a CIA spokesperson said, quote, CIA officers are committed to analytic objectivity, which is at the core of what we do as an agency. CIA officers may have personal views, but this does not lessen their or CIA's commitment to unbiased analysis. Eric, thank you for the facts on our first story today. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by the Financial Times. CIA officials are committed to analytic objectivity in their work. Officers have personal views but are still committed to unbiasedness as an organizational value. Nonetheless, this was a foolish move from a career official who knows better than to post on a divisive issue, particularly in the middle of a crisis. Intercept gives us an establishment critical narrative. In aiding and abetting Israeli attacks on Gaza, which UN officials have already warned may breach international law, the U.S. may be just as legally culpable if they provide direct military support. Some argue those crimes reach the threshold of genocide and or genocidal intent. Given the intensity of bombing in Gaza, it's no wonder a growing number of U.S. officials are growing uncomfortable. And from time to time, we get statistical-based narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They've got an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 50% chance that Israel will lift the blockade on electricity, food, gasoline, and medicine in Gaza by February 2024. Israel and Hamas are considering a larger deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Sky News, The Telegraph, CNN, and Axios. Qatari mediated negotiations between Israel and Hamas to extend the temporary truce that paused major hostilities last week are ongoing as the end of the truce looms. Israel officials confirmed that another two-day extension was on the table, but that it had not yet been confirmed. On Tuesday, spy chiefs from Israel's Mossad and the U.S. CIA were in Qatar to, quote, build on the progress of the extended humanitarian pause agreement and to initiate further discussions about the next phase of a potential deal. The new agreement may involve Hamas releasing men or military personnel, as all other previous deals have only pertained to women and children. An Israeli spokesman said 146 Israelis and 15 foreign nationals remain in Gaza and added that, quote, children were seriously abused while held captive. A senior U.S. official said that the White House was warning Israel not to launch offensive operations in the south of Gaza like it had undertaken in the north due to humanitarian concerns, saying that such an attack would be, quote, beyond the capacity of any humanitarian support network, however reinforced, however robust, to be able to cope with. Israel has continually vowed that it will renew its offensive once the truce with Hamas ends with Israeli Defense Minister Yuav Gallant saying that Israeli forces will use, quote, the same amount of power and more across the entire Gaza Strip. The Israeli military has already dropped leaflets over South Gaza calling for the Strip's two million citizens to flee to a small strip along the coast, the space approximately the size of Los Angeles's LAX airport. In less than a week, Israel launched another large-scale raid into Jenin and its neighboring refugee camp. A spokesman for the Palestinian Red Crescent Society in Jenin said that Israeli forces, quote, surrounded all three major hospitals in Jenin, searching ambulances as they came and went, leading to the deaths of two Palestinians. Earlier this month, Israeli forces killed 14 Palestinians in a raid into Jenin, 
and five were killed over the weekend. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left almost 15,000 people, the majority of whom were women and children, in the Gaza Strip dead, while the official Israeli death toll stands at 12,000 people. Adam, thank you for laying out the facts. The first spin is a pro-Israel narrative coming from Jerusalem Post. While freeing hostages is of the utmost importance, Israel must not succumb to unfair international pressure. Hamas has a history of forcing uneven deals, and the Israeli War Cabinet made the right decision by weighing its options before accepting this temporary pause. It should remain clear, however, that Israel's ultimate goal is to eliminate Hamas from the Gaza Strip, and Jerusalem will continue to work toward this end, even if that necessitates a resumption of conflict. And we're going to counter that with a pro-Palestine narrative provided by Middle East Eye. The Israeli military has inflicted disproportionate harm on the civilians of Gaza as opposed to on Hamas itself, and further assaults could lead to the deaths of many more. Israel has made a wise choice to bring its citizens home immediately through this temporary ceasefire, which should be extended. This will also see much-needed aid reach Gaza, where an utter humanitarian cataclysm has unfolded. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that at least seven Arab League member states will have normalized relations with Israel by 2027. Argentina's Millet meets top U.S. officials and seeks an IMF reset. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Financial Times, Latin Post, Yahoo Finance, Associated Press, and BBC News. Argentine President-elect Javier Millet met with senior U.S. officials on Tuesday as his economic advisors held talks with an international monetary fund team in Washington to win support for Millet's plans to boost Argentina's struggling economy. His two-day trip comes ahead of his December 10th inauguration. The Libertarian stated he had, quote, very comfortable talks with the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Latin America Advisor Juan Gonzalez, in which Argentina's economic and social situation was discussed. He added that his foreign policy would consist of, quote, alignment with the U.S. and Israel. On behalf of the Biden administration, Sullivan confirmed that the U.S. wants to cooperate with the incoming Argentine government. The White House further revealed that investments in technology and clean energy, human rights, and support for democracy were covered in the meeting. Meanwhile, Millet's economic advisor Luis Caputo and campaign manager Nicolas Posse met with the IMF and the U.S. Department of the Treasury as the South American country seeks to restructure its $43 billion loan agreement with the IMF. Caputo was announced as the next economic minister on Wednesday, confirming that a more traditional team will manage Argentina's inflation-ridden economy, despite Millet reportedly still planning to make good on its campaign promises to shut the central bank and dollarize the economy in the long run. Millet, a former economist and political outsider, defeated his left-wing rival Sergio Massa in the November 19th runoff election. Following his victory, he announced drastic and immediate economic and social reforms as the country is in a deep economic crisis, with 40% of Argentines living in poverty and inflation at 143%. Thank you, Eric. Our first spin for this story is a pro-establishment narrative provided by El Paez. The fact that his first trip as president-elect took him to the U.S. illustrates the significance Malay attaches to bilateral relations with the U.S. In terms of foreign policy, Malay has made it clear that he's standing firmly on the side of the West and Israel. During his election campaign, he also pledged to distance himself from China 
and reject Argentina's BRICS membership. For the free world and Latin America, Malay's election is a positive signal and the U.S. should support this. The establishment critical narrative comes from Global Times. President Joe Biden's snubbing of this visit indicates that his administration has mixed feelings about deepening ties with a pro-Trump leader. Thus, it's not surprising that Millet has adopted a more moderate tone towards Beijing, Argentina's second-largest trading partner and the country's largest market for agricultural products, in contrast to his populist anti-Chinese comments during his campaign. The world is changing, and it would be foolish of Millet to jeopardize relations with China, especially as support from the U.S. always comes with a cost. And the nerds are going to chime in with an opinion. They think that there's a 35% chance that Argentina will fully dollarize its economy before 2028. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Iran claims to have finalized a deal to buy Russian fighter jets. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Breaking Defense, The Aviationist, Iran Wire, The New Arab, Politico, and Al Jazeera. Iran's Deputy Defense Minister Brigadier General Mahdi Farai has reportedly announced the purchase of Sukhoi Su-35 fighter jets, M-128 attack helicopters, and Yak-130 jet trainers from the Russian military. In September 2022, Iranian Air Force Chief Hamid Vahidi claimed that the purchase of Russian Sukhoi Su-35s was, quote, being considered while Shahrir Hidari, a member of the Iranian parliament's National Security and Foreign Policy Commission, had claimed earlier this year that other equipment like air defense systems, missile systems, and helicopters could potentially be delivered by last March. While Moscow has so far not commented on the alleged agreement, Farahi confirmed the deal while speaking to the Tasneem news agency on Tuesday. Farahi also defended Iran's ability to produce domestically manufactured aircraft. Iran's Air Force reportedly has a few dozen strike aircraft, including MiG-29 fighters bought in the 1990s and U.S. models acquired before the 1979 Islamic Revolution. In 2018, Iran announced it had begun the production of its own Kausar fighter jet for use within the country's Air Force, believed to be a replica of the U.S. F-5 jet, which was first produced in the 1960s. According to Western governments, Iran has supplied Moscow with drones since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. In an interview published on Wednesday with state-run media Izvestia, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybkov claimed that America would be mistaken if it expected to win the next arms race against Moscow. The U.S. has also recently cautioned that Iran may be gearing up to provide advanced ballistic missiles to Moscow. However, Tehran, claiming it sent drones to the Kremlin months before the invasion broke out as part of a defense agreement, denies sending weapons to Russia to be used in Ukraine. Thank you, Adam. The first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from Tehran Times. Military cooperation between two amicable countries, such as Russia and Iran, is both a legitimate and effective strategy for ensuring regional security and economic growth. The West continues to use Ukraine as a propaganda tool to demonize Iran-Russia ties as a threat to global peace. But such accusations are baseless attempts to distort the reality of two friends on the international stage. The New York Post is going to counter that with a pro-establishment narrative. Iran, Russia, and China continue to undermine attempts to establish international peace via an intricate system of diplomacy, propaganda, and conflict. 
Iran continues to drive Hamas forward, while Russia has doubled down on its illegitimate attempt to conquer Ukraine. The rest of the world, led by the West, must wake up to this global threat and fight back against state actors who continue to damage global security. The Metaculous Prediction community says there's a 50% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before 2030. Sunak cancels the meeting with the Greek Prime Minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, BBC News, Associated Press, New York Times, and CNN. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis on Tuesday voiced his, quote, annoyance at his U.K. counterpart Rishi Sunak's last-minute cancellation of a meeting to discuss the future of the Parthenon marbles, Greek sculptures exhibited at the British Museum that Athens has long sought to be repatriated. Sunak's spokesman said that it would not be productive to hold the talks, claiming Greece had broken the promise not to use Mitsotakis' U.K. visit to publicly relitigate the matter. This comes after Mitsotakis described the artifacts as, quote, essentially stolen in a BBC interview on Sunday. The sculptures, also known as the Elgin Marbles, were allegedly taken from the 2,500-year-old Parthenon Temple on the Acropolis by British diplomat Lord Elgin in the 19th century. The marbles have been on display in the British Museum for over two centuries. Greece has asked that about 250 feet of the frieze be returned to the country on a long-term loan in exchange for Greek museums sending a rotating selection of artifacts to the British Museum. The British Museum has countered with an offer for shorter-term loans of less of the marbles. Meanwhile, the Greek government has denied that there was any agreement not to raise the marbles' status in public, adding that Mitsotakis had hoped to discuss issues including the Russia-Ukraine war and climate change with Sunak. However, Sunak has defended canceling his meeting with Mitsotakis, stating it was, quote, not to discuss substantive issues for the future, but rather to grandstand over the Parthenon sculptures. Thanks, Eric. BBC News is going to start these spins with a pro-establishment narrative. The position of the UK regarding the status of the marbles has always been crystal clear. Any agreement to loan the sculptures out will be between Greece and the British Museum alone. Sunak had every right to cancel this meeting with his Greek counterpart over his flagrant disregard for the status quo, instead insisting on stirring up nationalist tensions to score cheap points against the British. The establishment critical narrative comes from iNews UK. The Parthenon marbles are an indelible part of Greece's cultural heritage and must be returned with due haste. The marbles were lifted from Greece thanks to an agreement with the occupying Ottoman Empire with the arrangement never reflecting the will of the Greek people. Most Brits themselves believe the marbles should be returned to Greece, with the potential repatriation being the ultimate testament to the historically strong relationship between Greece and the UK. And the nerds are going to pipe in. They think there's a 1% chance that certain marble statues removed from Greece in the early 19th century will be moved back before 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. You know, Eric, it's really kind of cool to see that way back in the day they used to play marbles, too. I've got a whole DVD collection of the history of marble playing I need to send you. Uh, You're going to love it. Oh, really? Yeah, it's hosted by Paul Rubens, and it's a detailed chronicle of, you know, marble throughout the generations. And it's absolutely breathtaking. And, And there's a bonus after this documentary ends. There's a bonus documentary about the uh, construction of battleships, and that thing is riveting. From marbles to battleships. I, that's what I really <laughs> loved about Paul Rubens was his diversity. From Pee Wee to Midway. 
(laughs) (laughs) In a recent report, Biden and Obama have split on their support for Israel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yahoo News, NBC, Politico, CNN, and The New York Post. NBC News reported on Wednesday that there was a rift between President Joe Biden and his former boss, Barack Obama, over how the U.S. should approach its support of Israel. The report, which cites five anonymous sources, comes as the president faces pushback from his own party for his support of Israel. According to the report, Biden told people in his inner circle that his public support of Israel has been more successful than Obama's method. In 2014, Obama publicly criticized Israel for launching a military attack on Gaza, an approach then-Vice President Biden said, quote, wouldn't work. A Biden spokesperson, however, has denied the claims about the president's comments on Obama's policy. For decades, Biden's mantra has been to hug Israel closely but refrain from criticism. His policy drew initial support, but many Democrats have pushed back against Biden's pro-Israel policy as civilian deaths have mounted. Meanwhile, despite considering imposing conditions on future military aid to Israel, the administration said that the U.S. won't pursue any restrictions on aid. Biden said the idea was a worthwhile thought, but has decided to remain steadfast in his support. Democrats' division over Israel has seeped into the Senate as the party's caucus debated placing more conditions on aid to Israel on Tuesday. The report came as Biden walked back comments that were perceived by some as a call for a potential ceasefire on Tuesday. Adam, thank you for laying out the facts of that story. We'll begin our round of spins with a conservative narrative coming from Daily Caller. Joe Biden is finding out the obvious. His party, including his former boss, has left him far behind. There's clearly no room for moderates in the modern Democratic Party. And Biden has been more than happy to move further and further left to appease his party's zealots. However, Biden is unwilling to move left when it comes to Israel. And he's now experiencing the wrath of his fellow Democrats. And that's going to be countered with the progressive narrative provided by Al Jazeera. Joe Biden is alienating many of his constituents by continuing to unconditionally support Israel's attack on civilians in Gaza. The U.S., and especially the Democratic Party, grows more diverse each day, and this current foreign policy isn't supported by many young voters. If Biden continues to ignore the moral justice happening in Palestine, real progressives will stay home in 2024. The pro-establishment narrative comes from The Washington Post. President Biden has been faced with an impossible political situation as he looks to navigate a diplomatic crisis in the Middle East. And despite criticism from both sides, he has handled the conflict as best as he can. He recognizes that maintaining peace relies on playing ball with different actors. And he knows that he can't deal with Israel in the same way he deals with other countries. Because they're 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 ruled by a bunch of young whippersnappers. That's right. <laughs> That's why Biden just 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 can't relate to them anymore. <laughs> they're too fast for it. That's what I said. They're too fast. Too yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're too they're too fast. You hear me? They're too fast. Too fast. Too fast. Too fast. All right. According to a European Union court, members can prohibit headscarves and other symbols in public offices. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Politico, The Guardian, and Independent. 
The European Union's top court ruled on Tuesday that member states can prohibit public employees from wearing overt signs of their religious beliefs. The ruling is most pertinent to the use of Islamic headscarves, which has been long a divisive issue in Europe. The European Court of Justice's, or ECJ, decision came in response to a case brought by a Muslim woman who was told she could not wear her headscarf at work. The woman worked as a public employee in the eastern Belgian municipality of Ans and said the ban was discriminatory. However, the ECJ said that a rule against public officials wearing visible religious symbols is, quote, not discriminatory if it is applied in a general and indiscriminate manner to all of that administration's staff and is limited to what is strictly necessary. The court says that states have an interest in maintaining an entirely neutral administrative state and that wearing blatant religious symbols could detract from the legitimate aim of maintaining neutrality. However, the ECJ ruled that public authorities have discretion to allow visible signs of religious or philosophical beliefs. The ECJ first rendered a decision regarding the controversial use of Muslim headscarves in 2017, when it found that the garments could be banned, but only as a part of a broader policy extending to all religious and political symbols. In 2021, it upheld its ruling in a case brought by two Muslim women in Germany. The issue is emblematic of a broader social, cultural, and religious strife brought by Muslim migration to Europe. In 2004, France banned Islamic headscarves and all religious coverings in schools. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We've got a left narrative to begin with, provided by the International Quorum News Agency. The EU continues to target Muslims, and the ECJ's latest ruling is yet another setback for the rights of Muslim women and girls. Citing neutrality as a legitimate aim, the EU's top court greenlighted discrimination against Muslim women in a decision that will dissuade those of the Islamic faith from public service. The European conservative gives us a right narrative. European countries have a right to maintain neutrality in their public offices, and groups don't have special privileges to defy established codes regarding dress codes. Countries such as France and Belgium have long-standing traditions of maintaining a neutral and secular environment in all public spaces and can't modify values based on mass immigration or other trends. Hunter Biden agrees to public testimony before House Oversight Committee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the USA Today, Associated Press, Daily Wire, CBS, and Washington Post. Through his lawyer, Abe Lowell, Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, Tuesday responded to a subpoena for testimony by offering to testify at an open court hearing in December, rather than a closed-door deposition, as part of U.S. House Oversight Committee Republicans' impeachment probe of the elder Biden. Hunter Biden expressed concerns a closed-door deposition could be manipulated by Republicans, and Lowell classified Republicans' attempt to link the president to his son's business dealings as a fishing expedition. In response, committee chair James Comer rejected the offer, saying that Hunter Biden wants to, quote, play by his own rules instead of following the rules required of everyone else. Comer added that he expects Biden to appear for his deposition December 13th. As part of the impeachment probe they launched in September, Republicans have also subpoenaed the president's brother, James Biden, and several of Hunter Biden's former business associates. The GOP House members also requested transcribed interviews from other members of the Biden family. 
Investigators have accumulated more than 12,000 pages of financial records and conducted interviews with people who've worked with Hunter Biden. They've uncovered evidence Hunter Biden tried to leverage his family name and father's prominence, but to date have reportedly found nothing linking Joe Biden to any wrongdoing. Adam, thank you for laying out the facts. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. If Republicans want to hear from Hunter Biden, they should take him up on his offer. History tells us witnesses who've met with congressional Republicans behind closed doors have had their comments taken out of context for political purposes. Of course, Republicans will demur because their first public impeachment hearing was an evidence-free embarrassment, and this entire probe continues to be a kangaroo court to tarnish the president during election season. And of course, a Democratic narrative is going to be followed up with a Republican narrative, and we've got one here provided by the New York Post. Republicans have been following the money and getting closer to proving the president's corruption. And Hunter Biden shouldn't be able to distract from the evidence by turning his testimony into a spectacle. It's typical procedure to have a deposition where lawyers can handle the questions with limited interruptions and then later possibly have a public hearing. If Hunter Biden has nothing to hide, he will adhere to the subpoena as is. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 25 percent chance that President Biden will be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. Hawaii's Attorney General subpoenas three Maui agencies over the deadly wildfires. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Honolulu Civil Beat, and NBC. Coming roughly four months after a series of wildfires in Maui, Hawaii, killed at least 100 people and displaced thousands of others, the state's Attorney General Ann Lopez announced Monday that she subpoenaed the Maui Emergency Management Agency, or EMA, the County of Maui Department of Public Works, or DPW, and the County of Maui Department of Water Supply, or DWS. As the first phase of her investigation involves identifying where the fire broke out and a timeline of its spread, Lopez's office said the subpoenas will allow the, quote, timely collection of facts. The office has also said that investigators at the Fire Safety Research Institute, or FSRI, which Lopez hired, are still lacking, quote, critical facts from several key stakeholders. Though he stepped down from the position a few days after the fires, citing health reasons, Lopez has also requested records of all communications to and from the former head of the EMA. Herman and Daya from 8 p.m. on August 7th, the evening before the fires through August 10th. And Daya faced criticism for not sounding the county's emergency sirens that many think could have saved lives. Lopez, who previously said she hoped state and local employees would, quote, voluntarily participate in her investigation, said Monday that her office continues to aggressively push the first phase of the independent investigation with testimony from the agencies expected December 11th. Mayor Richard Bisson's office said that of the 80 items requested, 32 have been submitted, 20 are pending, 12 still need to be cleared by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the rest are, quote, not under the custodianship or jurisdiction of the county or are pending further clarification from the state and the FSRI. A spokesman for the attorney general's office said the probe is a review of the fires and their response, but confirmed that there are currently no criminal investigations. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that interesting story. We've got a Democratic spin on it, and it's provided by Guardian. 
This entire tragedy needs to be reviewed from top to bottom, but that doesn't mean that local, state, or federal government agencies are specifically at fault for this. As Hawaii and its citizens work to rebuild their lives and communities and better prepare their institutions for future disasters, everyone from lawmakers to private companies and volunteers need to continue to put money in the hands of these victims and work to enact policies to end the destruction of burning fossil fuels. The Republican narrative comes from human events. Even if climate change played some type of role in these wildfires, the fact that emergency agencies failed so miserably in a state that faces natural disasters all the time, from tsunamis to hurricanes to volcanic eruptions, should raise everyone's eyebrows. Police barricades blocked certain people from fleeing communities. The Department of Land and Natural Resources delayed the release of water. And the emergency alert system only sent alert texts to some communities. That is beyond negligent, and people need to be held responsible. And the nerds think that there's a 50% chance that the official death toll of the 2023 Hawaii wildfires will be at least 116 as of January 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Now, Eric, wasn't it also Maui that accidentally sent out a warning to all the phones years ago about a missile, incoming missile? And they're like, oh, no, that was an accident. Sorry. Oh, yes. I think Remember that was that? Maui. Yes. I think, yeah. I think it was somewhere in Hawaii. Somebody's, somebody's been yeah. messing up over there, there yeah. apparently. Yeah. That's, it's, it is a dangerous, dangerous place. People are trigger happy over there. Hawaii, yeah, don't, I, I've, that's what I hear about Hawaii. Very dangerous. Don't travel to Hawaii. Don't travel to Hawaii. Very dangerous. No, I mean, they'll take some bad information and they'll, they'll spread it around like via text messages and stuff. Probably part of their propaganda about like, you know, that everybody thinks it's a, a great tourist attraction place, but it's really, really very dangerous. They're just, they've got a really good propaganda machine there. They, they'll put you on blast. They'll put you on blast. Yeah. As soon as you hit the island, they put you on blast. <laughs> I mean, just like everything else. <laughs> In our final story today, a recent report from the CDC states that U.S. life expectancy rose in 2022. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, ABC News, New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. A new report released by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, on Wednesday showed that U.S. life expectancy rose to 77 and a half years in 2022, up by 1.1% from the year prior, with the expectancy at birth for men rising from 73.5 in 2021 to 74.8 in 2022, and for women jumping by 0.9 to an average of 80.2 years. While the rate did jump significantly from the pandemic years, 2022's life expectancy was about the same as the rate recorded 20 years ago after having risen a little bit almost every year for decades. The nation's life expectancy began to flatten about 10 years ago and even decline in certain years. During the pandemic, it dropped from 78.79 in 2019 to 76.4 in 2021. While the decline in COVID deaths, which totaled 1.1 million between 2019 and 2021, played a main role in the increase, deaths from flu, pneumonia, Perinatal conditions, kidney disease, and birth defects all rose in 2022. However, a decline in heart disease, unintentional injuries, cancer, and homicide helped add years to Americans' lives. 
all racial demographics saw a jump in life expectancy too, with Hispanics, American Indians, and Alaska Natives rising by more than two years, while Black Americans saw their life expectancy jump by one and a half years. Asians saw an increase of one year, and white Americans' expectancy rose by 10 months. This report coincided with another recent government report showing suicides in the U.S. reached a record 50,000 last year, with the overall suicide rate standing at 14.3 per 100,000, the highest since 1941. Adam, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from Vox. The U.S. had a bad life expectancy before the pandemic, saw a terrible one during the pandemic, and is now back to a bad one again. Thanks to decades of failed U.S. government policy, Americans are drowning in processed food, overworked by their employers, and can't afford health care. These are the reasons Americans can't live as long as their European peers. And a pro-establishment narrative provided by PBS NewsHour. The U.S. has a long way to go to catch up to other developed countries, but the fact that life expectancy has gone up is a very good thing. Another cause for optimism is that the U.S. has both the data and resources to tackle this problem, so all its institutions have to do now is harness that power and aim it toward a comprehensive national goal. The final nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community says that there's a 50% chance that the average U.S. life expectancy will be at least 76.72 in 2023. Thanks for listening to The Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.